Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Bobby Jean Misick. She is the justice, race, and equity reporter for the Gulf States Newsroom, a collaboration between NPR and radio stations in New Orleans, Birmingham, and Jackson, Mississippi. She's also an Ida B. Wells Fellow with Type Investigations, similar to one of our recent guests, Amir Kafaji. Bobby Jean has previously been an editor and writer for Essence and a reporter and producer in the Caribbean. Hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So we always start with a very simple question, and that's what's your journalism origin story? I live in New Orleans now, but before I lived here, I lived in New York City for a long time. I moved there when I was 18, a week before 9-11. And I went to Pace University, which is downtown, right across from City Hall, very close to the World Trade Center. And I hadn't declared a major. I wanted to study theater and I'm from the Caribbean and my Caribbean parents were like, you know, no. Basically, I wanted to to study theater and, and my Caribbean parents were against that and I hadn't declared a major and one morning I was getting ready for a pretty early class and my roommate ran into the bathroom and said, plane just hit the World Trade Center and you know, I was 18, just kind of like fresh to the city. We were, she's from New Orleans, actually. We were both like pretty confused by the whole thing. And then by the time I made it to class, the second one had hit and we were back in the dorm watching this tragedy unfold and and going through all these motions, you know, like the school was getting us ready to to take a bunch of students upstate. Some of us decided to to leave and walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. And in all of those steps, I just remember staying calm and wanting really desperately to move towards the disaster, I guess, and this desire to, to understand what was happening. And and I just felt like I had the constitution for something like that. And that was the day that I decided I wanted to be a journalist. Yeah. Wow. A, a historic a historic tragedy can certainly change people's lives in a number of ways. And it's interesting to hear that it changed yours. Was there anything in your upbringing or heritage that lent itself to telling stories? I remember as a kid, or I, I've been told as a kid, my so I'm from the Turks and Caicos Islands, and my my mother is Jamaican, and her mother moved to Turks and Caicos when I was a baby, and she opened a school, and the first setting for the school was my parents' garage, and so I grew up, you know, she would teach class with me on her lap. I was a really small kid, and, and so I think I learned how to read at a really young age. I don't know that I was comprehending everything. But she tells me the story of one day passing me in like the hallway in, in our house. And I had picked up one of my dad's books and was reading it as if I like, you know, really understood everything. And I, and I guess that's just like a nice anecdote. And my family members always tell me that they thought I would be 
that they thought I would be the storyteller in the family. And my dad owned a really small newspaper for a really short amount of time. And so I remember, I vaguely remember that as a kid. So some, so some career foreshadowing at a very young age. And it's certainly something that a number of people that we've had on have brought up. Now, you had a number of jobs before the one that you're currently at. So can you take us from your path to Pace University journalism to Essence and explain what you did there and what piece you won an award for? Sure. So I, you know, like I said, 9-11 was the day that I was like, I'm pretty sure I want to be a journalist. And then I went in a really different direction after that. I remember working for the student newspaper and kind of covering lots of different beats, I guess, and then getting the chance to do entertainment reporting for the student newspaper and then later for some alternative weeklies in New York through internships and stuff like that. And and I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. And so for a while, I worked for an alternative, well, not an alternative, a sort of subculture magazine called Trace. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was great. It was like, you know, I was writing about my favorite hip hop artists and cool art from all over the world. And also like uh, the way that they, you know, they really like examined, you know, post-colonial places and and also had a big issue every year called Black Girls Rule that like showcased Black models. And so from there, I I moved home to Turks and Caicos and I uh, worked there for a little bit, helping to bring the local TV stations news online. And so I launched their online news and, and did that for a year. And when I came back, I my editor from Trace, one of my editors had ended up at Essence on the website and and asked me if I wanted to apply for a job. And, and that's kind of how I got my my foot in the door there. Um, but I think, I don't know, I I think what made me like excited to stay was I I was an editor who was in charge of the Love Channel and I was pretty young. And so I kind of felt like, what am I going to, how am I going to like be in charge of this this channel and, and talk to black women of all ages about about what it's like to like experience love as a black woman and also to you know there was like sex and sexual health caught up in that and so that was kind of like the mandate and what I decided I guess is just to get really into those topics and and that was good because one of the things that I got to do was to write about the first same-sex wedding for that was featured on the site. So two women from D.C., two Black women that were married, and, and we featured them really prominently on on the site and, and got their backstory. And it was really a pleasure to to cover their wedding. And for that, I won a GLAAD Media Award. Very, very nice. From there, you went and worked in Jamaica doing media work, and you mm -hmm. did some intense stories there. And one of them brought back memories for me. I remember when the Washington, D.C. sniper 
when that happened. And I was reading that you interviewed him. And I was wondering if you could just briefly tell us about that. Sure. So actually, I was a producer for that segment. Our executive producer on the show that I worked on, which was called 18 Degrees North, did the actual interview. But I, when I was in graduate school, so when I left Essence, I left because I wanted to to attend graduate school. And I went to CUNY's graduate school, which has been renamed Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. And I, and I ended up going to Jamaica for an internship and for this company that I would later work for. Um, and we just discussed like the types of stories that we wanted to tell. And she, the executive producer, Zara Burton, was really interested in, in a few people from Jamaica who had ended up in prisons in the United States. And the DC sniper was one. And, and like you said, I too can really vividly remember that because after 9-11, I was really concerned that like anything that happened in DC would happen in New York or vice versa, you know? And so I just remember wondering if it was a matter of time. Anyway, we, we just decided to start writing letters to these guys and and went through the Department of Corrections in Virginia, I think is where he's being held. And and we were able to to get this interview. And you know, we were able to ask him a lot of things that I just don't think are brought up in with an American audience. And, you know, he talked a lot about having about his childhood and and his experiences with his father and also being sort of ripped away from his family at a really young age when he and his mother went to live in another Caribbean island I can't remember I think it might have been Antigua and and, and then the grooming that he experienced by by the other you know by his accomplice who put to death and yeah, I, I liked that insight. From that, we ended up developing a segment for that same program about, you know, about socialized violence among young boys. Excuse me. In Jamaica and in the Caribbean, and and um, just like a deeper dive. And what he said was that, you know, he compared himself to a child soldier. And felt like he should not, you know, be in maximum security prison for the rest of his life because, you know, he was groomed, he feels, in the way that a child soldier would be. And and those people get second chances often if they survive, you know? When you um, when you did the story, you mentioned before with the World Trade Center, your instinct of, you know, going towards the story. If I had done that story, I know that I would have been terrified. What was your kind of mental state in trying to do that one? I just really wanted to get it right and to be open. I don't know that there was, I don't know that there was much fear involved. I think I just, yeah, I just really wanted to get it right. And I was aware, it was my first time doing 
TV and or any kind of broadcast reporting and just understanding that we had a really little amount of time to share to like to get it right to get it right and that was you know that was my main thing and I, and I guess I I thought it is really important for people to hear from this guy to get the backstory certainly yeah. so let's fast forward a little bit to your current job can you explain what Gulf States Newsroom does sure so Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between member stations, NPR member stations in the Gulf South, particularly Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. So there's two stations in Southern Louisiana, and then one station in Mississippi and one station in Birmingham, Alabama. And, um, and they've hired the Gulf States newsroom as kind of its own newsroom that's designed to fill this void for like in-depth reporting in this region because it is a very unique region it is you know i guess an excellent news market in terms of all of the beats that we cover you know there's lots to cover in my beat which i've been focusing a lot on immigration justice and criminal justice lately you know there's health there's wealth and poverty there's reproductive rights right and so there's lots to focus on here and just npr i think hadn't had enough reporting coming from the region and so this is one way that we have uh, figured out how to to fill that void there are two stories that I want to talk to you about specifically. One goes back a couple of years. It actually sent me down, after I read it, it sent me down a further, I guess, rabbit hole, for lack of a better term, looking into other stories of a similar nature. It was one that you reported on race-based hair discrimination. I'm a white male, straight black hair. I know I knew nothing about this. I read your story. I went and read another discrimination that's been experienced among TV news anchors, and I found it all fascinating and certainly got much better educated on it very quickly. Can you tell us about the story and what went into that reporting? Sure. So what happened, I was sitting in a Zoom city hall meeting for an unrelated story. And as you know, I think at the time, I was the only Black reporter at WWNO. It just, they they talked about a presentation that had been done in the previous city hall meeting, and then they passed this kind of historic act called the Crown Act, which is, um, is an, an act that has been drafted in several states now and different municipalities that, that basically prohibits race-based hair discrimination. And it is because you know, in schools, in the workplace, sometimes even in, in housing, people have said that, and there are clear examples of hair, of discrimination against people because of their hair and hairstyles. And there are hair styles that are associated, even if they're not, you know, exclusive, I would say no hairstyles really exclusive to one race, but they are associated heavily with with 
certain races. So when you think about locks or certain types of protective styling styles like braids and, you know, even Afros, it's, it's associated with blackness. And so what's happened and what we've found is that black women have really borne the, the brunt of that discrimination. And, you know, I just told, I told my editors, this is a big deal. And they really, to their credit, they really, they agreed with me. They, you know, I wanted to do a feature and kind of, you know, a photo essay and just kind of move on. And they just, they kept pushing for something bigger. And so we actually, our story came out maybe like a month after this had happened, but we just put the time in to make it something really beautiful. And it's really funny how much attention that story has gotten. I, I got a Murrow Award for that you know, months and months later, NPR picked it up and asked me to do a different edit of that. And at the time I had been doing these like harder criminal justice stories. And it just kind of shows you like how much certain, how important certain things are to like people's psyche and well-being, you know? I'm curious, had had you ever experienced anything such as this? I think probably more like a deep sort of lack of understanding like so when I moved to the United States I ended up in schools in like you know the middle school that was pretty you know predominantly white it was myself and another girl that were the only two we were the only two black students in our class and I may have written about it in that piece, actually. I know I talked about it for something. I remember having moments where, you know, one time we had swimming in PE and I had gotten a relax, which is like when you chemically relax your hair and and you're not supposed to wash your hair directly after that. And so my mom wrote, wrote me a note and I got sort of like publicly shamed by my PE instructor for not wanting to swim and before that going to swimming meant that like my afro would get wet I don't know you know just like you feel really othered and singled out in those moments it is a form of discrimination I guess but as a kid I didn't really see it that way I just kind of wanted to hide you know sure one other question did you get other reactions similar to mine of people who were like kind of clueless about it beforehand that now started to, as I can tell you that I did, started to rethink how I approach treating people with, you know, different hair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely, even in my newsroom, I think there were people that were like, oh, I didn't know that this was a thing, you know? So more recently, you've done a number of pieces on asylum seekers, and this goes back to what you were saying with the kinds of stories that you're doing now, and the problems they run into specific to Louisiana and Mississippi. This is both in terms of how they're treated in detention centers, how they are able to find, whether or not they're able to find translators or interpreters to the judges who, at least in some cases, don't seem to be giving them a fair shake with regards to one aspect of the case. They're explanation for why they're seeking asylum how did how did you choose to do this story and what was the experience of covering it like sure so i the way that i found this story 
first I should say that ever since probably graduate school, I've been wanting to work on um, stories about immigrants in detention. And, you know, at the time I was focused on permanent residents who had been in the criminal justice system and were being deported. And I knew that Louisiana was kind of ground zero for that, for, for the flights, for the deportation flights. And so it, it felt really, I don't know, it felt really good, I guess, to end up in a, in the state where I wanted to do this work. Maybe good's not the right word, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And so I did have sort of a big eye on immigration since I've started reporting down here. And I found out about this story because there were... I got alerted by someone from the Southern Poverty Law Center who told me that they were submitting a complaint to DHS because a group of Cameroonians that were held in detention in Mississippi had complained that they had been pretty badly physically abused in order for staff at that facility to assist ICE in forcing them to fingerprint their deportation documents. And I should say allegedly because the because ICE and the facility have, you know, denied doing this. And so that's kind of how I found out about it. And and throughout the summer prior to that, there had been at another facility a number of hunger strikes from Cameroonians who were talking about the conditions in that and and at least one of them was allegedly, you know, violently quashed. Some of them had been in, in solitary, been placed in solitary confinement for long periods of time. And so in reporting that story, I learned also that Cameroonians, according to a Southern Poverty Law Center study that they did, were more likely to be, to not, to like be detained longer and, and not receive parole, which is what they call release from immigrant detention so not so they were more likely to not be released and where they were being held are for the most part these private prisons that have turned into immigration detention centers and the whole thing seemed pretty wild and unfair to me because you know there has been a crackdown i guess you would say on asylum seekers especially during that time during the trump administration but what stuck out to me was that Cameroonians have a pretty strong claim to asylum, especially the ones that I was learning about. Most of them were from the English-speaking part of Cameroon, where there is a huge conflict between the government and secessionist forces going on. And so it's very easy for people to get caught up in that conflict, and and they leave the country to save their lives, which is what happened to my sources. And and so I guess what I was investigating was just, you know, how this unjust thing was happening to hundreds of Cameroonians who just happened to be sent here. You know, they got to the border, they asked for asylum, they entered probably through California and or Texas, and they could have been sent to detention centers anywhere else in the country. Because they were sent to Louis to the New Orleans ICE field office, where the detention centers are basically Louisiana and Mississippi, they ended up, you know, having worse outcomes when they did their interviews. 
when they went in front of judges. And that just meant that they stayed in detention way longer. And a lot of them were deported. What was the biggest challenge that you had in trying to report this story? Okay, there were a few. I mean, the biggest challenge is before I even submitted the story to type investigations for the Ida B. Wells Fellowship, I submitted a freedom of information request to ICE because I was really trying to focus on the parole denials. And that request has still gone unanswered, you know. And I think if our station had better, you know, access to like better legal teams, we might have been able to sue, excuse me, sue ICE and get that information. But that meant that I had to kind of pivot and focus on other aspects of, of, of the experience of Cameroonians or find the information that I was looking for through different means. And so what I did was, after reviewing this study from the Tulane University Immigrants' Rights Law Clinic that looked at for federal relief, for federal, like, this federal relief called habeas corpus, where you get to argue for your release, they looked at them for the between the years 2010 and 2020. And I had heard from one of the African detainees in one of the facilities that a large number of Cameroonians had filed for habeas corpus at the end of 2020, which those months would not have been included in that study. And so I went to the federal district court and I spent hours, I went, you know, for like, (laughs) I went on three separate trips. I'd spend like the whole day and then realized that I'd have to go back and I was in Lafayette. And so I'd just have to drive out there and do that. But I just like poured over these habeas petitions for 2010 and, or excuse me, 2020 and 2021. And I found all of the petitions from Cameroonians and saw that they were being held in detention for really long periods of time. Like one man was held in detention for three years before he even filed for that relief. And running into judges that were problematic as well. I'm curious, I'm thinking in terms of traits needed for a person who was going to pursue reporting on a story like this, and it occurred to me that patience would certainly be one. Are there other traits that that would be important for someone who aspires to write the kind of piece that you did? I think what's helped me write this story is this, what's the word I'm trying to say or the phrase I'm trying to say? I think the trait that helped me is like being, I don't even know if questioning is the right word. Like, like curious is not the right word. It's like some like hyper curiosity or inquisitiveness is what you need. Because I think, you know, like I said in the story, Cameroonians did better than a lot of other people detained in the in the Gulf South in terms of asylum when you just look at the number like the raw numbers but I think 
that that like having that not be like good enough for me allowed me to keep being like well why do I still feel like they are you know experiencing like a deep injustice and and why is this you know still important to highlight like the plight of this particular group of people so yeah I just think like most investigative reporters have this, right? Like that itch that you just like, you have to keep scratching at it until until it's, until you're satisfied. Another characteristic of the story was the humanity of it and that you spoke to a number of, of these people that were, were being held or had been held. How did you get them comfortable with it? I just, I feel like I'm really lucky I don't know if that sounds, I know that's not like a very satisfying answer. I feel like the people I spoke to from Cameroon, all of them seem to be just really, um, you know, to have like a, a desire to share because they felt really strongly about, about, the the fact that they had you know fled terrible circumstances that they deserved protection and and that they wanted to say what happened to them was was not fair and actually you know what i find from that from the people that i spoke to still is that like they're the ones that are you know they reach out to me. They want to see like how I'm doing. They ask me how my family is doing. And so I don't know if there's some sort of like cultural thing there that worked to my advantage. I also will say for my main source, BJ in that story, I went to Houston where he lives about three times and I stayed a, a bunch of days while I was there. And for the first trip, we just kind of, we met at a restaurant we for the first day and and you know we just sat around and talked and I let him you know I think he was a little wary of me and I just I I let him ask all the questions that he needed to ask and I really let him know that like if there was any moment where he lost trust in me that I would you know not use his any of our interviews without his permission you know and I just kept reiterating that and throughout the writing process too just whenever we did check in with each other you know I just wanted I just kept making sure that he was comfortable with what he was doing. We've had a recent run of journalists where we've talked about like getting away from journalism and doing other things and other interests that people had we had one who coaches volleyball we had another who performs dramatic monologues and performs does theatrical performances. Did I hear right that one of your interests is stand-up comedy? Can you tell us about that? Yes, yes, you have heard right. I love stand-up comedy and in a lot of ways I feel like it like saved me from like depression. I actually got into stand-up because I after coming back to the United States from working in Jamaica, I was having a really terrible time finding a job in journalism and 
my, I guess one of my other, probably the longer career that I've, the longest career I've ever had was as a bartender. So I was doing that and trying to, to get journalism work. And on a whim, I decided to take a sketch comedy writing class and kind of through that met people who were doing improv and and doing stand-up and one of my girlfriends encouraged me to get on stage and uh, and I did I went to an open mic in the East Village it was a women's only or women's and not like trans non-binary open mic and I remember that I didn't bomb but I didn't do well my friend recorded it and it was the first time, you know, as a journalist, I'm sure you know, the editing process is so painful. And it was the first time that I wanted to go back and edit my work with, without, like, you know, I had no hesitation in doing that. I just wanted to make it better. And so, yeah, that's how I started doing stand-up. Cool. Do you still do it? Yeah, yeah. I uh... I took a little break during the pandemic, but once things opened back up here in New Orleans, I I started doing it again. So, all right, last question. So the podcast is called The Journalism Salute. We're here to salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. Is there a person or organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? There are two journalists that I follow pretty regularly and one covers immigration and I mean he's a big deal but I still want to salute him his name is John Washington and actually there was a story that he did while I was reporting mine about a tape that got real that made it outside of a detention center in Louisiana of a Cameroonian man being assaulted by staff at this facility and so just like you know I'm always in awe of the of what he gets to do. And then the other person is a reporter for the AP. He used to report for the Times Picayune here in New Orleans. His name is Jim Mustian. And he through just like the most amazing, you know, you know, when you talk about like built source building and, and getting things, he was able to 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 get video body camera footage of the Louisiana State Police engaging in a pretty brutal, you know, arrest that ended up in the death of someone and and the state police had been you know not not willing to release that footage and kind of just dancing around this poor man's death for years and what this reporter has been able to do is is just amazing jim mustian and john washington good choices thank you for me gene for taking the time to join us best of luck bobby gene mystic of gulf states newsroom best of luck we'll be following your work Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for taking the time with me. The Gulf States Newsroom was created to ensure that stories related to health care, criminal justice, the economy, and other important issues continue to be told. It encompasses two radio stations in Louisiana, one in Alabama, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and NPR. They're working together as a regional newsroom to plan coverage, share resources, and add reporting power in a story-rich region that has far, far too long gone undercovered. To learn more about them, go to wbhm.org backslash Gulf States Newsroom. 
Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.